Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everyone. I just love that introduction by Chris Martin to Coldplay. I, I just chose it because the, the lyrics are so profound and, and so applicable to healthcare in the, the serial dethroning, if you will, of physician as healer to provider. <laughs> Check it out. I used to rule the world. Seas would rise when I gave the word. Check that out. I mean, what what comes to mind when you think about that? I mean, you know, parting of the seas. Now in the morning I sleep alone, kind of lonely, and sweep the streets I used to own. Wow. <laughs> Says it all. At any rate, welcome to the broadcast, everyone. This is Greg Masters. I'm your host and also the publisher of the blog, ACOWatch.com, the ever-popular and gaining traction in the marketplace of ideas. ACOWatch.com. And today we are delighted to be broadcasting from San Diego, California, our usual home on December the 21st. And we are at the end of our broadcast series for the year. However, we will probably have one more session next week. I understand that I will be uh, 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 blessed to be joined by Brian A. here next Wednesday. So uh, check back. We're going to talk a little bit about health reform. And on the broadcast today, I'm also privileged, if he shows up, to uh, introduce you to or to reintroduce you to Jeffrey L. Cohen of the Florida Law Firm down there in Delray, Florida. He has not poked in yet. Last time I checked my switchboard. So we'll see if he shows up. At any rate, Today we're going to talk about ACOs, and we were going to reference the conversation. Let me first let me uh, give you a little background on Esquire Cohen, uh, Cohen, Jeff Cohen, and tell you why we're talking to Jeffrey today. Uh, Jeff Cohen is the founder of the Florida Healthcare Law Firm. He has over 25 plus experience of healthcare law practice. Uh, in keeping with his vision of offering the highest quality legal services, the Florida Healthcare Law Firm combines such values as transparency, ethics, and integrity. Mr. Cohen has strategically placed together a dynamic team of attorneys who will accompany him in seeing his vision to fruition. The focus of Mr. Cohen's practice, background, and expertise is in transactional healthcare and corporate matters, particularly as they relate to physicians ambulatory surgery centers, and imaging centers. He is a board-certified uh, specialist by the Florida Bar in Healthcare Law and has served in a variety of roles, including Associate General Counsel of the Florida Medical Association. Mr. Cohen was named the best healthcare th- attorney in 1995 at the 6th Annual Medical Business Healthcare Awards and was recognized by his peers in Florida trends from July 2008 issue as one of the Florida Legal Elite 
for 2008. Wow, Jeff. Prior to founding the Florida Healthcare Law Firm, Mr. Cohen served for 13 years as a partner in a respected law firm located in South Florida. Okay, so now with that as an introduction to my ostensible guest, let's talk a little bit about uh, the conversation I had intended today. And and I have to tell you, I'm a little energetic because I'm fresh off a little bit of a rant that uh, I had uh, on Twitter. And again, uh, this show, this uh, conversation, almost uh, all of the people that I chat with is an attestation of the power of social media, generically speaking, and Twitter to be specific. I'm an avid fan of Twitter. It is dismissed by many and so poorly understood by most, but nonetheless, I'm a fan of Twitter. So I had met Jeff, actually, through Twitter, and um, Jeff wrote a... Actually, I think I enabled Jeff to get present on Twitter, but somehow our our paths crossed, and uh, we sort of spar with each other on uh, health reform. And Jeff has a a point of view about health reform and more specifically about accountable care organizations. And he wrote a post back on uh, May 23, 2011, titled ACOs are S-T-U-P-I-D, stupid. (laughs) And then he goes on to define what he means by stupid. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll just read some of that because this is the context. What I wanted to do is revisit the conversation with Jeff in light of um, uh, these, this is, these comments are viewed through the lens of what was the then notice of proposed rule that was published on um, March 31st, one day before April Fool's Day, very timely, CMS. And I guess he had some three-plus weeks to process this. And so here's his take. And I, and I might say he wasn't alone because there were quite a few people, many of whom I interviewed on this show, including a Cheryl Skolnick, who was an analyst back there, um, who wrote about the, what are we missing here, you know, in terms of how this could possibly work. There was great skepticism in the market that ACOs could, in fact, work based on the parameters that the CMS had put together for the uh, notice of proposed rule. So here it goes. ACOs are stu- – and oh, by the way, acowatch.com, go to the blog, post today for the program is there, and the link, there's a link directly to this blog post, but it reads as follows. ACOs are stupid. We have probably never seen so much enthusiasm and spending on anything in our history as we have seen on healthcare reform. The point is to slow spending and improve quality by incentivizing cost saving quality-enhancing behavior, and the accountable care organization is the new healthcare delivery model designed to save us from our greedy, overutilizing selves. Here's how it works. First, you take a lot of primary care physicians and tell them they will get more money by, one, taking an expanded role in taking care of patients, and two, reducing the expenses associated with that care. Then you tell them two really special things. First, you tell them, uh, since we're afraid that you will improperly reduce the amount of care the patients need, we won't tell you which patients are in the ACO and which are not, end quote. Second, you tell them, quote, we really mean it when we tell you that we intend 
for you to make more money, but we won't tell you exactly how we're going to do that. Trust us, okay? End quote. Little, little, uh, no, uh, you know, intonation over, overdoing there. I think Jeff had a certain degree of sarcasm going in the post. So, rather than reread this entire post, I would direct you to the blog acowatch.com. So, what does the acronym "stupid" stand for? Okay, here we go. Stupid S. Simplicity. There is none. Never before in our history have we seen something so simple, parenthetical, patient rationing, become so complicated, parenthetical, rationing equals less expensive care. And so many acronyms in government departments and positions, too. There are one-sided models, two-sided models, and now a pioneer model for those who are especially adventurous. And did I mention that the basis for healthcare reform, the one that the one that only state of Washington has the courage to articulate is really just rationing? Question mark. So there you go. Simplicity. T troubling to pretty much everyone. Yes, except for I for policymakers, there has to be any significant support for anything other than the idea that healthcare could cost less to be more outcome-oriented. Even the Mayo-Geisinger Cleveland systems have all politely declined at this point. U, unlimited flexibility. Yes, this is true, especially as it relates to patients. C, patients can be in a cost-saving ACO or not. They can go in and out of them, and the ACO will bear the cost. That's right. Patients can go in and out of them, ACO, non-ACO, and yet only the ACO will be penalized for cost increases. Let's see. The ACO model is the cost-saving model, and the plan is to allow patients to choose for society to save money or not. And the patients have zero incentives for, for participating in an ACO, and who is responsible for the behavior of, those, of, of these patients? Well, we are. P, patient accountability. This is completely lacking in the ACO model. There's absolutely nothing to incentivize patients for making healthy decisions and to not punish them for making unhealthy ones. Also, primary care driven, not really. There aren't enough to go around, but some guy who knows a doctor is free to see you now. There aren't enough to go around, but some guy who knows a doctor is free to see you now. Oh, also, pro-competitive, meaning everyone will want to be an ACO, so that will create competition in the market and a tremendous drive to to drive costs down and quality up. Okay, not really, but wouldn't it be nice if that could happen? <laughs> in fact, healthcare reform is functioning to do one sure thing, reduce competition, since only the biggest, strongest organizations can afford to compete or be one. I, inexpensive, nah, while the cost, initial cost projection suggested about $2 million price tag for forming one, they're now up in the 12 to $26 million range. And D, finally, D, direct and demonstrative. Not the healthcare reform delivery plan is like pushing a mouse through a maze by its tail. So there you have it. There's the argument. ACOs are stupid. You be the judge. 
as to whether or not those bullets remain essentially true today as we find ourselves not in the NPRM stage, but we're actually living under the terms of the, quote, final rule. And this is timely because earlier this week we had CMS announce the first 32 uh, participants in what they're calling the Pioneer Program. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Pioneer Program, uh, that is essentially CMS's efforts to extend outreach to the more risk-savvy participants, typically integrated delivery systems, multi-specialty group practices, and the like, uh, who have had experience with capitation and generally care coordination and integration that's more commonly associated with prepaid systems. So the first 32, which is an interesting batch, you'll also see uh, a link in my Twitter stream today, at 2HealthGuru, where I've listed the uh, participants from A to Z, if you will, starting with Alina Health and concluding with the University of Michigan Health System. So there you have it. Um, I won't really take these one at a time. I was hoping to do that in, in dialogue with Jeff. Um, but I would say that obviously some of these uh, points are actually well-made. Clearly, the absence of control and the fact that health status is often a byproduct of choices no healthcare practitioner has any direct control over. Nothing's going to change there, basically. The difference, the gap between knowing better and doing better relative to one's health, i.e. healthy choices, is a uh, challenge for most of us. Uh, not just those Medicare enrollees or those who might consider being part of an accountable care organization. So clearly the, the rule has made some, some changes. There were quite a bit of um, restructuring around the assignment and the attribution of members to an ACO and the risk corridor calculations. It's interesting that in reviewing the uh, CMS's comments about the comments they got, the 1,300-plus comments they got on the notice of proposed rule, um, is that some wanted more risk, some wanted less. So, you know, call it what you may, um, you know, back in the 70s and 80s and 90s when we were tussling this with this from both a health policy as well as health planning and then health implementation healthcare implementation, ground view, okay, here, how do we do this locally in terms of our hospital, in terms of our health plan, in terms of our medical group or physician network. Um, dating back to basically the 70s, this conversation has all been the same. It's been about restraining uh, the um, excessive growth of the medical of medical cost cost inflation versus CPI, and it's been always a three, four multiple and very visible on that basis. So going back to really 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, and now here again in 2011, we're still talking about the same problem. And really the remedy is actually the same and hasn't changed much. But why has there not been much progress? So I go back and say flaws as they may be, methodological flaws, incentivization flaws, structural organizational flaws or challenges, shall we say, 
Because, again, we're superimposing this integrated care, this coordinated care, this notion of shared governance. Oh, my God, shared governance? I mean, I, I wrote an article on that some time ago for ACO Insights. Uh, you know, just, just picture this. Other than a federally qualified health center or a publicly oriented delivery system, think about having shared governance in a private medical setting. You're at your board meeting and all of a sudden you look to your right and there's a patient there who's now a member of your board of directors. I mean, who's going to embrace that, really? Seriously. But truthfully, is that so bad? <laughs> you know, is transparency the antiseptic? You know, either you walk that talk or you admit the fact that you don't want people looking. And I understand arguments on both sides. But at any rate, let's go back to here we are, flaws, deficiencies, shortcomings with respect to Dr. Berwick, bless his soul, triple aim, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, the implementation of accountable care organizations as a centerpiece of that legislation, the nuance unbundling of accountable care in terms of the Medicare Shared Servings, Savings Programs, the demonstrations through bundling of payment, the advanced uh, payment program, and now the ACO pioneers all separately cast to a, create a wide net to draw involvement and proactive participation by healthcare stakeholders into the solution. So 2011, here we are, still grappling with problems that you can find in the literature back in 1965. So I'm a little concerned that we find ourselves in the current state that we are and that there are some people, best intentions notwithstanding, who are sitting on the sidelines, arms folded, basically saying, nah, we got a problem with that. You know, we're uncertain about this, or this is too much that, or not enough of this. You know, it's like, come on, get over it. Get on with the business of innovation. So I've come up with an acronym that ACOs are not stupid. They're, in fact, smart. Smart, okay? So I tweeted this morning my definition of that smart. So let me see if I can proactively manage my... Green here, and I did. Um, I'm a fan of TweetReach, TweetReach.com because it tracks uh, your tweet stream. So I'm going to tell you what my definition of smart is. Smart is sensible market approaches resolving trouble. Okay, and let me tell you what I mean by that. In the '60s, in the '70s. In the 80s, in the 90s, in the millennium, <laughs> it was about health care, cost, restraint, quality improvement, access improvement, and so forth. It was still limited to the healthcare sector at 17.5% of GDP, 2.7 trillion percent of the total GDP, 2.7 trillion in expense. It's no longer just about healthcare, it's about our economy. So if you follow the discussions 
not discussions. It's banter and um, partisan bickering and intractable commitment to internecine warfare. The healthcare conversation is front and central to the economic conversation and the viability of our government and our country because healthcare is so expensive, it's bankrupting the prey as well as the foreseeable future. Medicare, Medicaid, the, the, the run rates on Medicare, the projection rates, is there will be no other dollars than those dollars which are allocated to health care. So it's not possible. So before health wonks, stakeholders, health plan executives, system executives, medical group leadership, AMA, and so forth, could pretty much contain their conversation about how to fix the, their industry to their respective silos. Not true anymore. It is now in, and as a result of the patient care and affordable care, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, the debate which ran rather intensely, played out intensely in 2010, 2009, 2010, uh, it's now in the general stream of public conversation. So here's what I'm saying. ACOs are smart, okay? They're sensible. They're market-driven. There are a series of approaches, broad brush in the act, more definition in the proposed rule, further definition in the final rule, and including elaboration of these multiple channels of participation. Okay? This is not government dictating anything. This is government setting some parameters and defining a playing field and saying we recognize that healthcare is local, that there are high degrees of variability in terms of maturity to one's market, to one's ability to accept, to shift from a fee-for-service paradigm into a population-based paradigm. Big, big stretch there, but all the pieces are being laid on the table. So I'm coming at it from the perspective of, and bear with me here, this is again from my tweet stream. So the question really is, is healthcare leadership an oxymoron? Can the two coexist today and with one not snickering? And, and my thesis is, well, it depends. In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. And let me re- recount my, my first. Uh, I posited this morning a series of tweets, some of which were uh, acknowledged, most of which were just um, ignored, which is not uncommon in Twitter, Twitterdom. But I, I posed the question, hmm. the question being, is healthcare leadership an oxymoron? And then I followed that up with a series of observations. And let's start with the first one. Basically, my contention is there's substance for the question, okay? And I'm calling this, I like the uh, feverish cause of grievances and ailments versus hashtag 32PS, which I'm using for the 32 pioneers, hash 32 capital P small uh, underscore S or lowercase S. As, as context for question, and then 
I follow this up by saying I'm still stunned by the hand-wringing hesitation and opposition to lead by example. So is healthcare leadership an oxymoron? I followed that up with we need innovation with attitude in healthcare, not sit on the sidelines, hands folded, I meant arms folded, show me types. Okay? You ever been in that situation, you know what I'm talking about. No less than three decades of failure to serve public benefit. I think if we stand, step back and look at this objectively and fairly, that is a credible claim. Since the uh, uh, quality improvement, cost restraining, better organization, more efficient delivery of care and safer care movement has been underway. We have seen some successes in certain areas, but in the aggregate, We've just continued to consume an increasing share of GDP with an inability to demonstrate value for the resource input. So I'm saying no less than three decades of failure to serve public benefit. And I follow that up by saying healthcare leaderships supported by their well-paid consultants, and I mean really smart, bright, capable people, have brilliantly exploited the fee-for-service paradigm. We... Uh, I can go into that in rather great detail, but I'll I'll save you from it. You know, this part of it, I, I engineer was co-engineering this uh, in, in proprietary health system, uh, as well as the the nonprofit uh, hospital system marketplace. Um, my sense is, three decades have witnessed the serial extraction of value from public to private domain, kind of like the socialization of gain, the socialization of loss and the privatization of gain. It's that idea. So churn, baby, churn, while Wall Street cheers and executive comp explodes. I mean, do I need to fill in the gaps there? I mean, how many marquee nameplate changes have you seen on your community hospital in the last 30 years? Is it even open or is it a sniff, you know, or some skating rink. I mean, the, 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 the equity extraction to private benefit and gain by a series of smart VC-type people who understand value prop and, and, and where the dollar comes from and how it moves from one pocket to another do amazing things. But is it in the public interest? That's my question. So I, I'm saying my bias here would be that not really. <laughs> In some cases, yes. And and I am I do not subscribe to the blanket statement that for profit and healthcare can't go together compatibly. I think they can go together compatibly, but it depends on the business model. So I stand with that that serial extraction of value over the thirty year period from public to private domain benefit. So with that, picture this. Concurrent with what I call the bon temps roulé, for some, <laughs> we witness what in those 30? 50 million uninsured, 25-plus million underinsured, growing by day as the trend of provider-sponsored insurance continues to fall, yet fat cat health plans. All good, right? Not with me. You know, I guess if you're a, a well-point stockholder, 
maybe it's good for you as as an investor, but as a covered member or a covered life, maybe not. Have you checked your benefit plan? Have you checked caps, limits, whatever, you know, until these provisions in the law go into place? Ask yourself. I, I think personally, AHIP and their members are basically staying alive two ways. One is they continue to cost shift. They continue to argue in favor of consumer-directed health plans and write benefit plans that are of a high-deductible nature, which they claim does not serve as an obstacle to getting you. So I've, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for those of you who showed up today uh, to hear from um, Jeff. I don't know what happened, but we'll see if we can reschedule him. But uh, at any rate, uh, I could go on. The last observation I want is let's not forget about those mega nonprofit hospital system mergers and their ostensible community benefit promises. Earlier this uh, week, we saw a report that um, a nonprofit are reinvesting perhaps 1%, possibly 3% of um, their revenue in charitable, charitable care, So and uh, often include rather dubious claims for their 990 filings as to what constitutes, quote, community benefit. So having said that, thanks, everybody. My apologies again for uh, uh, this continuation solo rant, and uh, we'll see what we can do about it next time on next week's program. Join us next week. My guest will be Brian A. here. We'll talk health reform. Bye now.
That was when I 